From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Election deniers are going door-to-door trying to audit vote results themselves. CPR and NPR investigate. Then, suburban swing voters, particularly women, are on the mind of Colorado political scientist Sarah Hagedorn. A voter, for instance, who may be motivated by abortion, but not exclusively. As we move into the fall, she's now going to start looking at the economy and inflation. She's looking at new COVID strains and worrying about her job, her kids' school. Plus, overcoming the stigma of mental illness, especially among Black men. A lot of our trauma goes way back over two or three centuries right now to the days of slavery. And we, um, interestingly enough, carry a lot of that forward in a very innate, genealogical way. If you have a car that you've been meaning to get rid of, just sitting around in your driveway or garage, you can clear out that space and make a difference at the same time by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is easy and safe, and your donation can be handled online without any face-to-face interaction. The proceeds of your gift will help financially support CPR. Start the process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Thousands of voters in this state, perhaps tens of thousands, have had the same experience in the past year or two, a knock at their door from people asking about their ballot. These volunteers aren't with campaigns. They're with groups trying to make a shoe leather case that there's fraud in the election system. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland has spent the past few months reporting on this effort in tandem with NPR voting reporter Miles Parks. Benta, thank you for being with us. Happy to be here. And Miles, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So, Miles, tell us more about where this effort is coming from. So we've really seen this sort of canvassing effort, this idea of people going door to door in their own communities looking for fraud pop up all over the country over the past two years. Since 2020, the election denial movement has undeniably gone grassroots. And part of that is that there are influential people within this movement going across the country, spreading kind of the idea of voter fraud and also telling people to go out and do these sorts of canvassing efforts. One of the most prominent efforts that we've seen in the entire country is here in Colorado. A group called the U.S. Election Integrity Plan has been doing it. I mean, interesting that it's taking place in Colorado because, Benta, Colorado wasn't really a decisive state in the 2020 presidential election. And this is a state recognized nationally for how well it runs elections. So, like, why has this movement taken off here? Yeah, I mean, that's right. President Joe Biden won Colorado by about 13 points. So I think it speaks to just the widespread nature of this election denial movement and the fact that some of the key grassroots players happen to live in Colorado. Ah. Uh, Sean Smith, the founder of the U.S. Election Integrity Plan, he's a prominent proponent of false theories that the 2020 election was stolen, and he lives in Colorado Springs. What did you learn about this movement's tactics canvassing voters, Miles? It's been a little difficult for me and Benta to kind of figure out exactly how this effort worked because USEIP, this group, did not respond to our requests for interviews. But based on videos that the group put out, reports, documentation that they had online, as well as talking to canvassers and people who were canvassed, 
It seems like last summer, after the 20, you know, in 2021, a few months after the 2020 election, Mm -hmm. they sent basically dozens of people out to different neighborhoods. It's a little unclear why they picked different neighborhoods or different cities. um, And they sent them out with public voter records and had them knock on all of these doors, potentially, as you mentioned, thousands or tens of thousands of doors to try and double check the publicly available data. And as I mentioned, we we talked also with people who were doing the door knocking and heard a little bit from their side, as well as people who actually interacted with, with these canvassers. Yeah, one of the women we talked to is Michelle Garcia. She lives in Pueblo, and she had two canvassers knock on her door last fall. And Garcia said she kind of got the third degree. His specific questions were, did you vote by mail and ballot? How many times have you voted? He wanted to know who I voted for, who I supported. How do I know that it wasn't changed? And a lot of it was targeted at the clerk and recorder's office and that it was fraudulent. I would note that among the the canvassers we talked to, they said asking who people voted for didn't happen on their watch. So they said they didn't care how people voted. They were just trying to confirm the accurate number of ballots that that were cast at those residences. From those residences. Okay. Miles, what is the scope of this and have they released any results? It's still very, very unclear exactly how many doors were knocked uh, last year. But as I mentioned, so USEIP did release one report based on some of this canvassing effort that came out a few months ago. We've also heard... um, kind of through the grapevine about canvassing efforts happening in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Arizona, as well as a number of other Colorado counties that weren't mentioned in this, the only report that has come out so far, which was only based on canvassing that happened in four counties. Um, In terms of what they found, the group says they found a number of what they call anomalies, issues with the voting process. The problem, though, for anyone who wants to read this report and kind of figure out exactly what it's trying to say, as well as for election officials who say they want to get to the bottom of any election problems, is this report has all of these accusations about potential election crimes, but it doesn't have any evidence. It just kind of lays out these numbers, but doesn't give the underlying affidavits or interviews or who these accusations are coming from. None of that data is there. Well, that seems to be a pattern from this movement. Uh, I imagine that election officials either refute some of these claims or are pointing Benta to the idea that there is a lack of evidence. Yes, yeah, they they do. Miles and I talked to several county clerks and others who said they've repeatedly asked this group for this underlying data so they can investigate it. Uh Uh, Outgoing El Paso County clerk and recorder Chuck Borman says he thinks there is a reasonable explanation for any of these anomalies the canvassers think they found. And Borman is a Republican, and he's faced a lot of pressure personally from conservative activists in the Colorado Springs area. I think the volunteers that did this really want to gain better understanding and assurances. And I, I think you you owe it to them to uh, follow up on that data and verify that it is a, indeed the case and is not being used as a tool to push a particular viewpoint. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about a door-to-door effort by election deniers to try to suss out fraud in recent elections, although they have not 
provided much evidence to that fact. Many doors in Colorado have been knocked on in the past year or so, and we're joined by our own Benta Berkland and from NPR, election security reporter Miles Parks. Uh, indeed, you talked to a number of county clerks in your reporting, Republican clerks in particular. Uh, Benta, what did they tell you about the impacts they've seen from this effort? They said they've had complaints from voters who think the canvassers are from the government. Um, And in some cases, because the canvassers may have left that impression or voters made assumptions when they saw people coming to their door. In Mesa County, the elections office there said they had calls and questions for months and complaints from voters who were told by the canvassers that their ballot wasn't counted or wasn't properly processed. Uh, The county elections office said when they double-checked all of that, the vote was counted. So a, a lot of clerks are worried that this canvassing effort is spreading misinformation. Miles, anything to the add? other issue that this this um, this canvassing effort kind of presents is potentially a voter intimidation uh, issue because a, a number of voting rights groups have gotten together and have sued USEIP, uh, basically making that claim that going door to door in some communities and asking the kinds of questions that this group wants to ask uh, could be perceived as voter intimidation. Uh, USEIP, for what it's worth, has countersued those groups for defamation. Hmm. But they're certainly sowing doubt, it sounds like, Miles, in the minds of voters. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think this is part of the broader effort. When you look, kind of take a step back and look at the sorts of people who have been pushing these sorts of canvassing efforts, these are people who also want to roll back um, absentee ballot access. They want to get rid of early voting. You kind of see a trend between uh, sowing doubt in the results and trying to kind of create reports that sow doubt in the results and then um, pushing towards rule changes that would, uh, for all intents and purposes, make it harder to vote. I mean, Benta, you've spent the last two years covering the election denial movement in Colorado. So how does this group, the U.S. Election Integrity Plan, fit into the bigger picture, would you say? Yeah, so we, we talked about Colorado being somewhat of a hotbed for this. And I think one reason for that is that the voting machine company Dominion is headquartered in Denver. And that company has been at the center of false claims that the machines flipped votes from Trump to Biden in key swing states. The The people with U.S. election integrity plans say they don't trust the Dominion machines. Most Colorado counties use these machines. The company is suing a number of pro-Trump media outlets and supporters for defamation. And uh, I would also note that USEIP figures are connected to some high-profile people in Colorado, including the Mesa County clerk and recorder, Tina Peters. We've talked about that a lot on the air. Uh, She's been indicted on 10 counts for allegedly tampering with election equipment and for misconduct. And that was part of her effort to try to uncover unsubstantiated claims of a stolen 2020 presidential election. All right. I want to thank you both for sharing this reporting with us. I guess really briefly, in just a few seconds, Miles, is it possible that someone might have their door knocked on still? I think it is. I mean, okay. I think election officials I've talked to seem this see this is, you know, potentially playing out in 2022 and 2024 as well. NPR election security reporter Miles Parks teamed up with our own Benta Berkland. They covered this door-to-door effort to try to uncover election fraud in Colorado. And we'll be right back to try to pull apart the tangle of issues that will drive voters this election. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Numbers tell a story, and they can show how our world is changing and who is most affected. trend that hit a sobering milestone last year, more than 93,000 people. When numbers are high or low or simply missing, 
there's often a human story to tell. I don't want her to just be a statistic. We need to figure something out and make sure this stops happening. I'm data reporter Veronica Penny from CPR News Investigations. I use data to find and report stories. You can hear them on the radio or see them online with maps, charts, and graphics. Come to CPR.org investigations. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are so many factors that could influence people's votes this fall. Inflation, crime, abortion access, revelations about January 6th. And yet, at this point, voters may be more plugged into their summer plans than midterm politics. So if you could use a refresher, we have one for you today. I'm joined by Sarah Hagedorn. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Hi, Professor. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And Eric Sonderman is a political columnist and former longtime public policy consultant. Eric, thank you. My pleasure, Ryan. Sarah, we're a little more than three months away from Election Day. Of course, ballots hit the mail sooner than that. I'm curious what you have your eye on at this stage. Oh, wow. A little bit of everything. I think like all of us in Colorado, we have a number of interesting races going on, plus a new congressional district. So I'm watching the gubernatorial race. I'm watching the senatorial. I am watching specifically the CD8 race, which I think is interesting, and CD7. CD8, that's the new district drawn to be very competitive. And then you make reference to the 7th. That's a redrawn district, and the longtime incumbent, Ed Perlmutter, is not running again. So it is also an open district. I guess that's why the 7th draws your attention. It is, yes. And I think Representative Perlmutter did such a really good job of representing that district for so many years. And yeah, it is a plus 7 Democrat. That's what it's been drawn at. Um, But in such an interesting midterm year, I think there could be some surprises there. Some interesting vote totals, I think. Mm. That is to say, if it is a strong year for Republicans, I guess. Exactly, yes. So when you say drawn plus seven, Democrats have an advantage there. The question is, is it big enough to survive a sort of red wave? And I think it is big enough to survive a Republican wave, but I think it'll be closer than normally with that plus seven. Mm. All right, Eric Sonderman, what are you watching at this point? Well, much the same as Sarah in many respects. I'd add a couple of things. I'm watching how big that wave is going to be, the expected Republican wave. And obviously, we won't know until the votes are counted in November. But I'm watching national and local indicators. The presumption is that this is a big wave year, comparable perhaps to 2010 in President Obama's first midterm, comparable uh, to 2014 in his second midterm. We'll see if that builds. The question is, have there been other intervening events? The Dobbs decision, does that tamp down the Republican wave? Other factors, Do the, 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 if President Trump, former President Trump, announces a candidacy for another term as president, which is speculated about, does that tamp down the Republican wave? Uh, I'm watching, as Sarah indicated, certainly the 8th Congressional District. That is the tell in Colorado. That would be the first district to tip to the Republicans if it is going to be a year in which Republicans are competitive. If 
the Republicans, in that case, State Senator Barb Kirkmeyer, running for Congress. If she does not win that race, my supposition is Republicans don't win much this year in Colorado. That will be the first one to tip. If she wins it handily, perhaps other things tip as well. And she is running against Dr. Yadira Caraveo, the Democrat. Caraveo is in the state House, Kirkmeyer in the state Senate. You mentioned the Dobbs decision, of course, having to do with abortion. Do you think that that issue might play out differently in Colorado than other states, for instance? Obviously, to be determined. I think it will play out in various districts. I don't think it will be a uniform effect. I think there is a supposition that it might be particularly powerful in Congressional District 7, which we've been talking about. That's the race for the old Ed Perlmutter seat between Brittany Pedersen and Eric Audland. That's a district, yes, it has rural parts, but mainly it is a Jefferson County suburban district. And there is a thought that that issue would be particularly powerful among some suburban women, not necessarily even Democratic women, but uh, unaffiliated women and, and some Republican women, and work to Pedersen's advantage. We shall see. What's fascinating about the Dobbs decision, uh, well, many things, is it came before our primary, but it was too close for us to see any real effects. It was only four days before. Most Coloradans, we'd already turned in our ballots. So what's interesting about Dobbs is those who feel strongly about it are already voting Democrat or Republican. It's these, just like Eric mentioned, these unaffiliated female voters we need to be paying attention to. And I think she was paying attention to Dobbs in June. I think she's still paying a little bit of attention to that. But as we move through summer into the fall, She's now going to start looking at the economy, at inflation. She's looking at the rising price of food, fuel, school supplies. She's looking at new COVID strains and worrying about her job, her kids' school. Are things going to be closed down? And I think that's where her focus shifts as we move into November. So I think it will have decreasing effect, particularly on those specific voters as we move through the fall. Well, I wonder if the same might be true then of the House committee investigating the events of January 6th. I mean, there have been some very high profile hearings, bombshell after bombshell about President Trump and his inner circle the day of the Capitol siege. The vice president's security detail really feared for their lives. What is your sense, Eric, whether the tale of those reaches the midterms and the decisions that voters are making at the polls? I hearken back to Sarah's answer to the previous question. I think this all has a cumulative effect, but I don't think it takes the edge off of inflation, supply chains, increasing crime, fentanyl rampant in our communities, etc., as the dominant issues. To my mind, it doesn't reverse the expected Republican wave, but it may well temper it a bit. And if it tempers it, that means not as many seats fall. So I think the biggest impact of the January 6th committee and their hearings is probably within the Republican Party itself, and it's probably more applicable to 2024 than it is to 2022. But in terms of a, who runs for president. In terms of who runs for president, in terms of uh, former President Trump's expected complete domination of that field. And I think that is now becoming more up for grabs. In terms of its 2022 effect, I still expect 
these other issues to hold dominant sway. And so, Professor, it's possible that a party whose president at least helped egg on the capital siege will come to lead in at least one chamber of that same capital. I, I think that the House needs, uh, the Republicans need four seats on the House. And as we know, the Senate is 50-50. So you don't need very many people to win on the Republican side to have one or both of those chambers switch control um, in January. Let's talk about the governor's race a bit. Republican gubernatorial candidate Heidi Ganahl has announced her lieutenant governor pick. Navy veteran and defense contractor Danny Moore. Uh, He was apparently not her first pick. She'd said earlier that she'd planned to choose a Latino running mate. Uh, Moore was removed as chair of the redistricting commission because of his false comments about election fraud. Eric, what do you make of the pick? I make of it as another unforced error on the part of the Heidi Ganahl campaign. Choosing a lieutenant governor is the ultimate layup. Politics doesn't offer you that many layups, to steal a a sports metaphor. But this one is easy. You have your choice, generally, of a whole lot of people out there. I have a column currently running in various publications making the point that maybe we don't need a lieutenant governor at all. Maybe it's time to sunset that office. The only real reason for that office is for succession were something to happen to the governor or were the governor to resign in favor of some other position. Other states find other ways of handling that succession. And if neither party takes it any more seriously than seems to be the case at present, uh, maybe it's time to even look at the utility of that office. I do know that in Colorado, though, the lieutenant governor helps with Indian affairs, for instance, and has a collection, really, of duties. There are a number of offices that current Lieutenant Governor Primavera has a role with, and historically the lieutenant governor has been involved with the Commission on Indian Affairs. But I think, you know, with any degree of imagination, you could imagine some of those responsibilities being redistributed. Some of them strike me a bit as make work to find something meaningful for the lieutenant lieutenant governor governor to do do (laughs) other than carry a stethoscope around and make sure the governor's heart is still pulsing. I look at research on the vice presidential picks, and there's a lot of great political science research out there that says the direct effects on vote choice is minimal, Mm -hmm. small, short-lived. People don't really care who the vice presidential pick, and I think that moves over to lieutenant governor. I'd be interested to know how many of our active voters in Colorado could name current lieutenant governor Primavera. Is it an unforced error? Maybe. I mean, the announcing it was going to be a conservative Hispanic from rural Colorado and then have it not be. Um, I think a Republican analyst, Dick Wadhams, said the rule of picking a lieutenant governor is first do no harm. And those are just easy mistakes to not make. I also feel that at least and, and we know that many unaffiliated voters took part in the primaries and in the Republican primary in particular. And it seems to me that the message from the GOP primary was, we're not all that hot on election deniers. I mean, Tina Peters lost her race for Secretary of State. Ron Hanks didn't progress in the U.S. Senate race. Eric, care to share a few words? Yeah, and to your point, Ryan, those races weren't even all that close. The impact of unaffiliated voters, which was the intent of those amendments that voters of Colorado passed a handful of years ago to make unaffiliated participation in these primaries easier, it was certainly felt. And 
back to this point of the selection of Danny Moore, I completely agree with uh, Professor Hagedorn in terms of the de minimis effect of the lieutenant governor choice on the outcome of this race, only in that it's not about who the lieutenant governor candidate is. It's about what it says about the gubernatorial candidate. And in this case, it says that Heidi Canal, for some reason, is still trying to appease that election-denying base, which is a shrinking base of her own party. And that's not where this election will be won. If she has any chance, and it's a distant chance, of defeating Governor Polis, she has to pivot to the center. She has to peel a whole lot of centrist kinds of voters away from Jared Polis. And this is not the kind of move or signal that's going to do that. Let's do focus a bit on the U.S. Senate race. So incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett says he faces a tough re-election campaign, but he has thus far outraised his opponent, Joe O'Day. Of course, Bennett didn't have a primary. Professor, what do you think that says about the race as it stands? I always laugh when incumbents or any Senate candidate says, this is going to be a tough race. You need to send money now. You know, I've been watching Senate races and I've been involved with them for about 22 years, and I have never been involved with one where one or both of the candidates did not try to tell voters and donors that this was the biggest Senate race in 10 years. Mm. That's just what they do. That's just what the party is going to do. He's trying to get people fired up, mobilized, motivated about the race because he was in an uncontested primary. All the excitement was on the Republican ballot this time. So he needs to get people motivated. He also has been doing this for a while as well and knows that Republicans or midterm voters are going to be more motivated. I mean, it's interesting because uh, saying it's going to be a close race, of course, that helps with fundraising. Uh, But it can also be true, you know? (laughs) I mean, Michael Bennett has a history, Ryan, as we know, of running in difficult years for Democratic candidates. That's just the lot that he's drawn between 2010, 2016, now 2022. It's the cycle he's on. I'm repeating myself here, but I think it all comes back to how big that national wave is. If it's a neutral year, neutral with you know minimal headwind, tailwind, Bennett will probably be fine. But if O'Day is to win this race, Joe O'Day will not be the 51st Republican U.S. Senator. If he's going to win, he might be the 53rd or 54th or 55th if there really is a tsunami sweeping this country. But the Colorado seat will tip after the New Hampshire seat, after the Georgia seat, after the Arizona seat, probably some others that are even closer to the margin. But again, if that wave is big enough, if the wave becomes a tsunami, Bennett could be in jeopardy. To what extent do President Biden's approval ratings, uh, which are suffering certainly nationally, they have tended to be higher in Colorado than the country, but uh, to what extent does that influence what happens in Colorado? Professor? You know, the last time I looked, his New York Times, that recent New York Times poll had him at 33%. That is not where these Democratic candidates want their presidential approval to be. I think with his his disapproval ratings um, or his approval ratings are tied to the economy, to inflation, as those things continue to not look great, I think that only helps Republican candidates in Colorado. Anything you'd add, Eric? 
Not much. I think midterm elections, off-year elections are historically a referendum on the incumbent party in the White House. If this holds true to form, if other issues, whether it's the Dobbs decision, whether it's Trump's looming presence, whether it's the January 6th hearings, if they don't really come into play, and historically, as we've discussed, they don't have that much impact, then it becomes a referendum on the current president. And as the professor pointed out, his numbers are in the tank, and his ability to really elevate those numbers between now and November is limited. Thank you both for being with us. Glad to be here, Ryan. You bet, Ryan. Political scientist Sarah Hagedorn of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Eric Sonderman, columnist and former longtime public policy consultant. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with what's become a personal mission for Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. The Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep springs up near vertical cliff faces with ease. Special hooves help them snag little protrusions on the rocks and give them grip. Coming down, the bighorn can leap as much as 20 feet, spreading its toes to use as brakes on dizzying descents. Bighorns were once plentiful before disease and hunting brought them to the brink of extinction in the 1880s. Just a few hundred remained in 1944, when biologists lured about two dozen into a corral at Terriol Reservoir in South Park to grow their numbers once again across the state. One little band, on the way to relocation to Pikes Peak, got stuck in Green Mountain Falls when the truck broke down. The driver released the animals, they headed east, and ended up in the Garden of the Gods, Their descendants now draw thousands of visitors each year to see the most famous herd of the Colorado State Mammal, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Anxiety and depression are rampant these days. And to reach people of color who are often under-treated, Denver's mayor has launched a new collaborative. Michael Hancock calls it Black Health and Healing. He spoke with my co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Why was tackling mental health, especially mental health in the Black community, particularly important to you? This issue is important for all of our society. I think we have an unmet need in terms of mental illness, and, and I think that we have got to get on this issue. These these issues of mass shootings and, and uh, other situations that we're seeing in our communities today, whether it's um, mental health, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness as a result of their untreated mental health or drug addiction that we're seeing in terms of opiates and fentanyl, um, it, it is at a crisis point right now. And one of the things about the African-American community, not only are we untreated, but we're uncommunicated. We don't talk about it as a community. We, we still see it as a stigma. You know, we put the crazy uncle in the room. We don't talk about Uncle Luther back there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we got to, I think, normalize um, the challenge in our, in our families and be willing to confront them and really encourage people um, in the African-American community to seek treatment. Uh, because on check treatment, which, by the way, a lot of our trauma goes way back over two or three centuries right now to the days of slavery. And we, um, interestingly enough, carry a lot of that forward in a very innate uh, genealogical way uh, today. It's in our DNA psychologically. Doesn't mean we can't overcome it because we've overcome a lot. 
But we've got a lot of work to do, and we've got to be honest about the fact that uh, we're, we were facing these challenges. To put this more in a bit of context, can you share with us any data or statistics that you know about mental health in Denver and Colorado? Here's what we know, and I'll speak about it in general terms because I don't want to misguide us on numbers specifically, but majority of us face mental health challenges. Some of them are more acute than others. Um, but it, most people, interestingly enough, more than three out of four people you see are dealing with some form of mental health challenge. Um, and, and again, um, and most of it goes untreated. And I, you know, the reality is that we may be talking about with someone face to face today and tomorrow we hear that they committed suicide. And there was nothing to indicate to us that, you know, such and such had any kind of challenge, was facing any kind of challenge, because, quite frankly, uh, they didn't talk about it. And, and they didn't show any signs. We have become good at masking our pain and masking the challenge that we're facing. Um, and so the reality is that we, we have got to be a society that if we normalize uh, mental illness, um, and if we normalize in terms of, you know, when I say normalize, accept the fact that exists amongst us and the fact that we are able to seek treatment and it's OK to seek treatment. And that's what I mean by pulling back the stigma. Um, I know many celebrities like Oprah Winfrey are saying, let's remove the stigma. I'm in treatment. I'm in in counseling and I'm OK with that. And we got to make it okay for people to talk about it. And I think we're starting to do that. And that's why I did the events in, during Black History Month, because we had two very, uh, I think, prolific authors, um, people talk about their struggles and how they triumphed over them through treatment and counseling. Uh, they're not out of the woods, but they're willing to be honest about what they went through and that uh, they're still fighting. We're going to talk a little bit more about what was discussed at those Black Health and Healing events. But you have one year left in your term. Why launch this now? Mental health has been something I've been very concerned about for quite some time. And in fact, when I came in as mayor, probably around 2012, 2013, I sat down with a mental health expert. Interestingly enough, our former first lady, Jeannie Ritter, we were at lunch and I said to her, I said, Jeannie, I'm struggling with, I see the challenge with homelessness and, and the drug epidemic. I said, what am I missing? Is there a mental health component to this? <laughs> I'll never forget. She dropped her fork with such ferocity that everyone in the restaurant looked at us. Mm. And she said, finally, someone's asking the right question. That if we start with a public health perspective on these issues, we can begin to, I think, approach them in the right way. We cannot approach homelessness or people experiencing homelessness with a pure homeless or housing perspective because we're going to miss the fact that vast majority of the people who are homeless, experiencing homelessness on our streets, um, are, are dealing with some form of mental health um, or addiction challenge, behavioral challenge, a public health problem. And if we start there, do we begin to peel back the onion and get to the root cause? So it's not like I just started now. It's just, it's just that I'm starting to be more aggressive how we put together programs and use partners to help us address a lot more of these uh, challenges we're seeing. You mentioned some of this in your recent address to the city. Home prices have skyrocketed mm -hmm. during your time in office. The number of people experiencing homelessness has risen. There are encampments, violent crime, overdoses. How does all any of this, in your view, play into the mental health issues? Because all of what you just pointed out uh, speaks to injustices in our community. When we see homelessness, we are seeing a market failure. Um, we are seeing an inequities play out. Uh, when we see uh, people who are experiencing hunger, uh, when we see people unable to access health care, 
we're seeing trauma play out. And if we don't, as a society, believe that results in some form of behavioral health challenge, people resorting to drugs to to mask their pain, um, people, quite frankly, just losing their wits about themselves, then we're, we're missing the whole point. Um, I often tell people when we talk about the protest around George Floyd, absolutely, people are tired of the injustices and the, the unnecessary, unwarranted use of force by police officers that have cost thousands of lives around this country. But we're also looking at centuries of trauma inflicted among African-Americans and other people of color and, quite frankly, other people who um, are, are working class and poor in our nation that kind of manifests itself and it exposed itself. It came out uh, during that time. We've got to look at it from a socioeconomic realm. And so the point that I was making in my discussion about justice, let's understand what injustices result into in our community when we don't address issues of homelessness and we don't address issues of lack of affordability around housing, lack of opportunity or access to capital to start our businesses. These are elements of trauma, small wounds being inflicted daily, hourly, by the minute on a certain group of people that ultimately result in some tragedy occurring in our society. And we've got to recognize the connections. You've mentioned these challenges and um, also this trauma, uh, these trauma experiences, these trauma responses, what options or resources are available in Denver and Colorado to support those struggling with mental health, even some of the ones you described with homelessness and drug addiction and that type of thing? Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of, uh, obviously not enough services, let's be very clear. I mean, in the nation and the states, have really failed to provide enough resources for and enough beds for people experiencing mental health challenges. We don't have enough treatment beds for those who are dealing with addiction. And that's a, those are real illnesses, right? If you've had anyone who's been addicted to anything in your family, whether alcoholism or a drug, and African-Americans, we saw a proliferation of uh, the pervasiveness of crack cocaine in our communities in the late 70s, early, and throughout the 80s. That's a real illness, and we don't have enough treatment beds uh, today, even still to today. We're working on it, but we don't. You're going to see us invest more in medicated treatment services around the city of Denver, partnering with nonprofits to provide more treatment services and hopefully more beds. In our jails, when people are arrested and you come in with addiction service, addiction, and maybe you are, it was the reason why you got arrested because you did something for, to support your habit or, or, or did something while high. We're going to give you medicated, uh, medicated treatment services or at least access to them. Maybe a different, they're going to be, it's going to be a completely different pod that our sheriffs and behavioral health specialists are, are managing. Uh, secondly, on the streets, instead of re- re- having officers respond to someone who's having a crisis, uh, we are sending, Denver's a national leading model under our STAR program, we are sending public health officials instead of police because they need help, not handcuffs. We got to connect them with services. And so, unfortunately, we saw this with Paul Childs in 2003, a young man uh, who was killed by an officer who was having a mental health episode. He had a knife in his hand, and the officer couldn't decode, couldn't recognize what was going on with Paul. This teenager lost his life because we didn't have the proper resources to deploy to help the situation at that time. So the reality is that we, we know more now and we got to get better. And that means we've got to have non-lethal response um, to these challenges and crises that we see on the street when it warrants. Black health and healing, from what I gather, is mainly been a series of events that you've held this year, exploring various aspects of mental health. Tell us about these events and what happened. 
so far? Sure. We chose Black History Month because it was a chance to really kind of galvanize and to grab the attention of the African-American community on this particular issue. And so I brought in two authors, two that I had met previously. One is actually a friend. I've known him for a while, and I read his book, and I said, Ray, you got to talk about this book. Of course, Ray Crockett, former Broncos yes, player. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> former all-pro cornerback of Denver Broncos, played on the first two Super Bowl teams for the Denver Broncos. Ray, great guy, good friend. And he wrote the book, Bump and Run, and it talks about his um, – his retirement where he fell from glory to really pain and where he almost ended his life. And it took his good friend, Rod Smith, former all-pro wide receiver of the Denver Broncos, to fly from Denver to Dallas and to basically break in Ray's house and say, brother, I'm taking you out of here. You're going to be okay. Because Ray had secluded himself. He had locked himself off from the public. Ray was he, and he's very candid. He says, I was about to end my life. You know, the applause had ended. Um, he was, you know, financially okay, but he had ruined himself financially from the partying, the women. He lost his family, his wife, uh, the drugs, the alcoholism, just so much hit him all at one time. He was trying to get back the glory and the adrenaline he would get from the field and the, the collapse of the audience that he lost all his money. He was investing wrongly and he's a smart dude. He's gotten all that money back, or at least a lot of it. He's a very successful businessman today, but it took Rod Smith and really seeking treatment to get help. The other book was written by Shirley Smith, and Shirley is um, a phenomenal lady, but she gives a story about her upbringing, the difficulty of dealing with a mother addicted to crack cocaine, but the story really sends around her birth of her child, who mm-hmm. almost died, her fight to save her child, and she she unveils the disparities in health care. Now... The difference was Shirley was the wife at the time of a former great Denver Nugget, former great Los Angeles Laker, former great Cleveland Cavalier, uh, J.R. Smith. Mm -hmm. And they had the resources. But she said, had I not had the resources, just imagine, she said, I would have lost my child. Because those doctors weren't willing to do everything they could until they realized who they were and they had the ability to take care of their child. But she also talks and chronicles her mental health struggles. And Smith, as you mentioned, J.R. Smith played for the Nuggets from 2006 to 2011. And uh, I had the opportunity to attend the Ray Crockett event. And um, I'm a relatively new Coloradan, 10 All years right. in. From where? Atlanta A-T-L. via New Orleans. Yes, okay. okay. <laughs> so I'm a Saints fan, sorry. All right. <laughs> but I was really captivated by Ray's story. Yes. Uh, I hadn't heard of Bump and Run, so that was exciting to learn about his signature move. Right. But it was really interesting uh, to hear, you know, with athletes, you hear such a macho, you know, mentality, like you have to kind of represent this sort of exterior, this hard exterior, and for him to be so vulnerable. And I'm going to ask you what what attracted you to his story. But I want to note that Ray is currently out of the country, but he has agreed to share his Fantastic. story on Colorado Matters. So you will want to hear that interview and uh, we will try our best to recreate that amazing story that Ray shared with us, um, which I'm sure many of his fans who followed him as a athlete and as a commentator would appreciate. But what was it about his story that really stood out for you? Well, first of all, it's a powerful story. And knowing Ray, to your point, you would never have guessed that this would be someone who would go through the challenges that he would go through. And, you know, the, 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 the point is, is that, you know, you know, you get to these places in life and you're afraid to trust anyone to say, I'm having a problem. Mm. And even if you're not in a station in life where you're worried about being exposed, 
we just as black men are not taught to be vulnerable. We're taught to be tough. We're taught to be strong. We're taught to not let, you know, let them see your sweat kind of movement because we were degraded. We were so dehumanized uh, back in the day of slavery and Jim Crow that now we don't do that. We don't let you know you got me. And, or anything's got me for that matter. And you know what? To our detriment. Um, mm. Because thankfully, uh, uh, Ray, uh, Ray had a friend in Rod Smith who said, there's something different about you. I'm coming to get you. I got you. You talked about black men in particular in the black community. But what about you? Mm-hmm. Is this personal for you? Have you ever personally struggled and, and needed support or felt the need for just some type of support? Absolutely. You know, listen, I I went through a lot. First of all, I have a sister who was addicted to crack crack cocaine for, boy, she's uh, in her mid 50s now, probably three quarters of her life, if not more. Um, And and so I watched and saw and kind of understood and learned a lot from her addiction and how she had a fight to come back. But I'll tell you, during the pandemic, um, you know, you had the perfunctory. How are you doing? Everybody asking, how are you doing? And you got the perfunctory response. I'm doing okay. We're getting through this. You know what? But at the end of the day, I had to be honest with myself. This stuff sucks. This is hard stuff. And it was weighing on me. It was weighing heavily on me. Uh, waking up every day and knowing that every decision I made was going to impact someone's life. The call to shut down the city that I knew would cost livelihoods of people. And, and quite frankly, seeing people die from this. And, and I had, you know, I stopped counting 17 people that I knew personally who lost their lives during or as a result of COVID. So this was a tough mental health challenge. And of course, during shortly thereafter, I went through a divorce and I lost, you know, one of my best friends to the disease. And I also lost my favorite friend in the world, my dog to, I mean, just all at one time. And one of my long time, longest serving appointee, I lost her during the pandemic and, and she lost her daughter to suicide uh, who was these folks were like family to me. So, you know, you can only take so many darts during that time and without it beginning to say, you know what, this stuff hurts. And only when I sat and just was honest with myself, this stuff hurts. This is painful and I need help. Did I seek help? And then I begin to cope with it and, and be honest about it and get through it. So who's been the audience at these events? I know I did attend the Ray Crockett yeah. event, and I happened to notice walking around some young African-American yeah. men. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about who attended some of these events? That was very intentional. We wanted our young men to understand that it's okay to say, I need help, to raise your hand and say, I'm not doing okay. Um, and so we were intentional about making sure they were in the room. We were t- intentional about making sure young women were in the room for Shirley's story. Mothers were in the room for Shirley's story. Women who had experienced uh, maybe a tough birth or, uh, you know, you know, postpartum depression, uh, whatever. They were in the room for Shirley's story. Um, as well as, you know, women who have been through situations where their husbands were unfaithful to them or they lost a partner or a tough divorce because she had been through all that. And she got a chance to talk about all that and how she triumphed through all that. We were very intentional about who was in the audience so that people could understand that people go through things and it's uh, better to ask for help. Are there any plans to expand this Black Health and Healing to maybe more of a public or widespread event? Well, I think what's important is that we continue to put together the partnerships and fund uh, resources in the community uh, with, you know, the African-American Health Initiative and others that are we partnered with to, to do this initiative, uh, that we continue to do those things to make sure services are getting out the door. 
I also mentioned during the State of the City address that we have, uh, we participated greatly in Colorado was one of the leading states and Denver was one of the leading cities in the opiate settlement um, that went nationwide. There is no doubt that this recurrent drug epidemic started with the Sackler family and their greediness. Uh, we sued. And we are part of the class action lawsuit. We'll receive our first uh, tranche of uh, about $8 million in the next few months. And we're going to direct those resources back into the treatment services to expand them and to make sure that, that we are helping those who are, you know, addicted as a result of the actions of this one family and a board of directors that felt it was more important to get this drug out and spread across rather than care about the health and well-being of Americans. Well, thank you so much, Mayor. You bet. Thanks for having me. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock speaking with my colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. If you or someone you know is struggling, there's free and professional help through Colorado Crisis Services. Text TALK to 38255 or use the new national number 988. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. First-generation kids can struggle to fit in. That was true for Alan Benavides when his mother sent him to the first day of school in Aguayavera. And again, years later, when he went to Oregon to manage a minor league baseball team. I never felt more brown in my life. How Alan Benavides hit a home run. The new episode of CPR's podcast, Quien Are We? Exploring what it means to be Latino, Hispanic, Chicana, everywhere you find podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Finally today, congratulations to singer-songwriter Neela Pekarik. Her musical, Rattlesnake Kate, recently took home eight Henry Awards from the Colorado Theater Guild, including Outstanding New Play or Musical. Pekarik was on our show to talk about her collaboration with the DCPA Theater Company and to share the true story of her musical's heroine, Colorado Frontiers woman, Catherine Slaughterback. October 28, 1925, she was out on horseback with her three-year-old son, Ernie, and she hopped off the horse to open a gate and found herself in the midst of a whole lot of rattlesnakes. And so to get back to the horse safely, she decided she was going to shoot the snakes with her gun. She quickly ran out of bullets, but this had disturbed the snakes. And she describes it as these snakes were coming for her, springing into action. And so she kind of went into fight or flight mode and chose to fight. She grabbed a no hunting sign from the ground and began to clobber these snakes. And she did it for two hours and killed 140 rattlesnakes. And her name really was Slaughterback. As for Pekarik, she grew up in Aurora, a theater kid who went on to study her craft at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. She has also won a Henry for supporting actress in a musical. She played Rattlesnake Kate's horse, Brownie. Watched a hero rise and shine her noble steed by
singer-songwriter Neela Pekarik in our studio performing one of her songs from Rattlesnake Kate, which has just won eight Henry Awards from the Colorado Theater Guild. By the way, the day of this ceremony would have been Kate Slaughterback's 127th birthday. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.